Welcome to Legal Lens, a DebtWire podcast on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. My name is Andy Serby. Today, I'm glad to be joined by Joel Cohen. He's a managing director in the Disputes, Compliance, and Investigations group at Stout, as well as the managing partner of their New York office. He's got extensive experience in disputes, forensic accounting, and insolvency with a focus on finance and asset management. His practice runs a wide range of issues, including cross-border insolvency, bankruptcy, litigation, and consulting to fiduciaries, including receivers, monitors, and offshore litigators. Some of his big career engagements have been working with funds impacted by the Bernie Madoff and Thomas Petters frauds, as well as the Celsius Network Chapter 11 cases. Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. It's great to be here. So first, I'd like to do a little bit of background on you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into this kind of specific line of work within the overall industry? Sure. So coming out of university with a finance and economics background, slight focus in, in accounting, I was doing the dance that many of us have done, trying to figure out what part of the financial community I might want to be in, whether it's consulting or investment banking or some other form of economics. And I remember a friend working at Deloitte, one of the big four accounting firms, and uh, the contact that had hired him said there's this one practice that sometimes hires general finance and economics people that work with the CPAs to uncover fraud. So I went for a lunch down at the World Financial Center. And they were talking about this case that they were working on, going through the seized Swiss bank accounts by the Nazis, trying to work out reparations from World War II. And I, I was blown away. I just couldn't believe that this is an actual career. This is something that people go to work doing every day. So I got into their disputes practice and, and focused in forensic accounting and uh, financial fraud. And that led me to eventually split my practice into the insolvency space and brought me here today. Oh, it's funny how often really interesting careers can start off that way with that exact question. Like, I didn't know that was a job. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely felt that way. But uh, also surprising that I've stuck with it for this long, but it's been really, really interesting. Yeah. And now that it's very much like on your brand, can you tell me a little bit about how Stout became the place where you really built out the practice to the level you have it now? Like why Stout? Prior to joining Stout, I had known the firm for about a dozen years. It uh, wasn't as well known as the, the marquee larger firms. But I had a, a mentor there and someone that I would bounce difficult questions off of and day-to-day dealings that were outside of the client space. I would, I would speak with them and, and kind of watch them grow slowly throughout the years. And I found that it, it was one of the most sensitive firms, one of the friendliest firms on, on the street. Here in New York, you know, it can be quite competitive. And even within the firms that I've worked, sometimes there are sharp elbows and, and folks just trying to vie to build their practice. But this truly was like a collaborative place. In fact, trying to work with their firm over the years. And so eventually I got the call to, to maybe jump ship and come and, and check it out. And so the, the past years have been great and really excited about the opportunity in New York and the fact that this, um, this firm is focused on growing New York. Absolutely. So jumping into the practice, I want to start off with the fraud and asset tracing part, kicking it off with some cross-border discussion. A significant part of your practice involves coordinating between regulators, insolvency cases, and different venues. And can you talk a little bit about how you kind of handle that juggling from your perspective? Sure. I think we're living in a time that is more international than ever. It's it's rare that there is something strictly domestic. Maybe 20 years ago, you could work at a company, invest in a, in a private equity fund or a hedge fund, and it would solely be US-based or, or European-based. Everything is cross-border. And so when there's an insolvency when there when there's tumult when there's something in the market that affects these international companies you have to be dealing with 
the different jurisdictional issues. You would go into this blind if you're not mindful of the way that the uh, regulator or the way that a potential insolvency proceeding might work itself out in the different jurisdictions. So I find myself often being an advocate for either the U.S. bankruptcy court in a Cayman courtroom or Cayman law that's impacting a U.S. bankruptcy. I sit here in New York, but have lots of experience on these international matters and, and trying to understand the other side, I think, can often help you go much further in, in what needs to get done in, in a restructuring or wind down. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And jumping over to a world that has intimate familiarity with especially Caribbean issues, we can't really talk about asset tracing and forensics these days without talking crypto. You and I touched on this a little bit when we've previously spoken, but volatility is a major issue when we talk about this this asset class, uh, when not, not just with how it affects creditors, but also when we see them getting collateral, like used as collateral. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about how that plays into the cases that you work on and whether you think they have like a strong case for kind of viability because we are feels like we're seeing the cracks a lot lately. It is a new world, right? It's a new world when it comes to investments because of how much digital assets, cryptocurrency, how much it's permeated the private investment community and just community at large. So you're, you're raising this structured lending and this, this concept that's been used so often in, um, in these cryptocurrency companies where they're digital assets in these different currencies are the collateral for, for lending. We've seen this volatility, this extreme volatility. So it's quite difficult to count on an asset functioning as collateral when one day it's up a thousand percent and the next day it's down 2000%. How do you continue to, to monitor the collateral and how can you depend on this and value it and then you know continue to build or wind down a company or, or business when that's happening? It certainly creates quite a challenge. Additionally, just the pricing of collateral, you know, cryptocurrency is a constant uh, stream. There isn't a, a, a time that trading is off where that, um, you know, you can, you can kind of bake in a stopping point. So, so it's not as, as serious as the volatility, but it's certainly a consideration as we're trying to do our valuation work. Right. And it also plays, it plays to a high degree in um, kind of jockeying among parties. Cause we've seen cases where you have litigation between parties because group A is accusing group B of kind of strategically waiting until a peak crypto day to call in the loan and maximize returns or minimize it or something like that. Yeah. And sometimes there are outside market factors that the entire community isn't, isn't worried about. You have just in public markets, the same game can be played, but somehow as this, as this community, as this new investment vehicle is forming, and they, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about the risk management and, and areas where that could be improved. It just doesn't seem like there's uh, equal disseminating information. Right. And stuff like that information gap, just the general difficulty of understanding crypto. And then we factor in multi-jurisdictional issues. It seems like there's an uncommon amount of, for lack of a better term, like language barriers when it comes to managing that stuff. And that also presents a risk. So we can talk about the risk management there, but also just how difficult is it to speak to other experts and other professionals when you're dealing with these issues? You often have to try and find a certain common ground in history and in other asset classes. That common ground is formed by a regulator, by a community of investors that have created the industry norms. Those norms are still being formed. And in fact, you know, sometimes being formed out of disruption, out of volatility, out of insolvency. 
when that takes place, it's it's often reaching across the line and trying to to best understand what the common ground could be because it's just not established yet. And this ties back to the volatility stuff, but I want to talk a little bit about valuation and that also there's also connections there to this new language that we're creating because we have an asset class that not everyone understands. We have ways that it goes about like mining that also not everybody understands. And then we have traditional lending and we have traditional investment vehicles like eat like ETFs for mining businesses. So from like a valuation perspective, what kind of challenge does that present for people who do the work you do? It's impossible to go into a valuation assignment or to try and assess a company with valuation in mind without having a multidisciplinary team. All of the things you mentioned are completely different professionals and backgrounds, people that are able to value the mining centers, you know, the, the thousands of mining centers and some of the names that we could be talking about. It involves real estate, it involves data centers, it involves technology, it involves machinery and equipment, and probably a whole host of other things. So if you're if you're not coming to to valuing that type of business with all of those disciplines and being able to work on a team to be able to do it, I, I don't know that you'll get the clear picture. You know, when it comes to the individual coins themselves and the lack of marketability, these are all factors that, that you have to be very careful when, you know, in prescribing figures and trying to put discount rates on. So it's it's um, it's a matter of understanding the market and really taking your time to do the the analysis. And we're talking about large companies that are involved in all of these platforms. So yes, you can use traditional lending uh, protocols for valuation, but like we were discussing, when the collateral can be volatile, you have to you have to be mindful of that, and you have to ask the right questions, and just be careful and try and find that that common ground, as we were saying. And I think most people who watch the market at all would say that we're. I guess this would be back in 2022, 2021, we were kind of exiting an unprecedented bull run for that market. And we saw a lot more traditional involvement than we had previously seen. There have been bull markets in the crypto market before, but they didn't have the retail level of involvement that really, really drives a reaction from traditional bodies and regulators. So do you think that'll change in the next couple, in the next couple of years? Do you think like the hand has been forced in terms of people really starting to treat this stuff seriously? Yeah, I think there are a couple of issues there. We definitely have experienced a check on this new market. You're talking about a time, and I'm smiling because I remember when one of the large investment banks announced that, that you could now have cryptocurrency as part of your 401k. And that this that to me was such a um, an obvious sign of how much of a fad that this was. This was something people were into and they wanted exposure to. And 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 so it, it became this growing space that private investment funds, ETFs didn't and, and the, the investment community at large were interested in. And they're also, you know, we had a long period of quantitative easing. We had, we had money coming into the economy as a result of COVID. And so there was money to spend in this space, but the regulator hadn't come out with any specific rules or regulation. There wasn't legislation specifically speaking to digital assets. It was coming out rather in enforcement, in insolvency matters, things happening and trying to regulate by enforcement in a sense. We're continuing to see that happen. I think there are parts of the community, the digital asset community, that, that want the regulation. They want certain risk parameters. Certainly, trading uh, platforms and other areas of this industry are, are looking for support, for a framework. But I think we're not there yet. So yeah, we're definitely not there yet. But it really does seem like we're kind of on the bleeding edge here. We've got a body of law that's being actively developed in bankruptcy courts and by 
to a maybe a reluctant degree, regulators. What does that mean for us going forward that we're kind of just watching rulemaking in progress in maybe the place that people wouldn't expect it to happen? Yeah, I think you're right. I think certainly the investment community that's focused in cryptocurrency and digital assets, they're watching all of these large insolvency matters. They're seeing the way the structure crumbled or parts of the structure held up or how it's going to be restructured for a community that can reinvest. If you're out there and you're looking at risk parameters, you're looking at where to invest your dollars or how how to diversify across cryptocurrencies, you're going to want to see how these parameters held up with creditors, with a court, with a wind down, with volatility, and with all these parties trying to vie for their position to be able to return value. So I think it's an interesting position for all of us to be in, to watch this law and this uh, industry custom being formed through the bankruptcy court and through receiverships and insolvency. Great. And I'm glad that you went to receiverships because that's the next topic. This is going to be a broad question. It's a whole it's a whole broad area. But how do you handle entering a distressed situation as kind of an outsider where you've got already like a financially strained situation? You've got a bunch of stakeholders and you've got to really try to preserve the company, whether it's in or out of bankruptcy, like you're you're coming and taking the reins. That's a challenge in and of itself. Every situation is unique. You're probably expecting me to say something like that. But understanding mind and management, engaging management in the best way that you can so that the the assets of the company can be preserved and utilized to help it move forward. If it ends up being a wind down and and just a a return of, of whatever value is left to investors, that's what it is. And the court will supervise and make sure that that's done appropriately. And you've got fiduciaries and, and folks like us to help make sure that that happens. But if you can really understand the industry, understand the business and the drivers of the business prior to some event or prior to whatever took place that caused it to happen, I think then you can try and maximize value and understand the market that might benefit from these assets. Is it common or not for you to have a little bit of difficulty coming in with with management? Like, is there an issue with the people currently running the company feeling like there's some sort of a usurpation going on, or maybe like that your very presence kind of is an indictment of their stewardship. Yeah. Like I said, every, every situation is unique. So certainly if, if we're involved because the regulator has come in because of some, some bad behavior or, or alleged bad behavior, there's an absolute tension and managing that tension and still trying to understand and get the documents, books and records and understand the drivers of the business, I think is, is an art and is a science at, at points. But if it's not that, and you're able to step into the shoes of management and try and understand the market and where competitors play and what can help the business that's or the company that's been affected by this event, I think then, you know, there could be a positive outcome. Yeah, absolutely. And we just talked about engaging with management. The other side of that is, uh, you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, which is regulators and government. A lot of times when you have a receivership, it's they didn't ask for it. Someone put it there. So how do you meaningfully engage from both the company side and the government side when everyone's got kind of their own perception of how things are going to play out and you're just trying to preserve value? Uh, one of the keys is acting swiftly and trying to understand as much as you can in a short period of time. It is absolutely a coordination between the needs of the regulator, the needs of the company, and the ability to return value to the interested parties, to creditors, investors. And it's a, it's a bit of a dance. So you're obviously there because something took place that caused a regulator to, to have their inquiry, to have their investigation. And you need to cater to that need and, and to have, help them understand and allow the regulator to do their job. But you also have a duty to the court and to the investors and the creditors to make sure that you can maximize value. 
quickly understanding the situation and getting up to speed and using all the tools that the company or the business has had at its hands throughout its life, I think is really an important factor. So to a certain degree, receiverships touch on the conversation of of what we have called before ABCs or alternatives to bankruptcy. But I'm really curious what the differences are in how you handle a distress situation, receivership versus bankruptcy, because kind of in both situations, we've got a company that's trying to preserve value and survive and their hands are kind of off the wheel. It's a really important distinction. And I'm glad you raised it, Andy. It's Obviously, with with something with a company filing for bankruptcy, you have the bankruptcy code and you have an ability for discovery and a, a much larger proceeding and a framework for which you can understand all of the inner workings of the business and the transactional history. With a receivership, you're drafting an order with the powers of the receiver. The court is, is approving that and, and informing that. But if you have something that is uh, industry specific or you have something situationally specific, you're able to build that into the order. And if your powers need to be expanded, you go back to the court and you're, you're asking for those powers to be able to do that. So depending on the industry, and I think the example that's used most of the time is probably cannabis, right? There is in federal law for the cannabis industry. And so receiverships um, you know, have, been, have been tried as working through some of the, uh, the issues that that industry has seen. And, and you're able to structure an order and a receivership in a way that can handle that community. With bankruptcy, there is a prescribed process for creditors and a prescribed way of creating a plan and, and hopefully working through plan of emergence. So it's um, it's a bit more defined. Yeah, absolutely. Towards the end of the conversation here, we're going to loop back to cross-border a bit. I'm using the example of SVB, Silicon Valley Bank. We have almost kind of an encapsulation of everything we've touched on so far. We've got regulators, we've got cross-border challenges, it's got everything. So can we talk a little bit about how you handle the interlocking issues of consumer protection, uh, unprotected overseas consumer funds that you don't have the FDIC to look over? There are Cayman issues, which is something that we talked about earlier to kind of put a bow on our conversation. Let's talk about how you put a bow on all those issues in yeah, like a single case. I, I wish that I could create the, the neatest bow that could tie everything up perfectly. It's funny. We're, we're living in a time where we have this perception that our legal framework, that our international investing community is mature and has, and has all of the issues worked out. Uh, we see legal issues in the media more than ever before. These things are being talked about you know, on a daily basis. And so we all feel very informed on these issues, but there's still law to be made. There's still areas of protection that, that are not there. We've talked about it and, and exposed a little bit of that in the digital asset and cryptocurrency community. You know, in working through SVB, you As the example, you do have this group of investors that are international that may not be covered by the the rules of FDIC, and now you have um, this receivership in place. So it's so important for jurisdictions to coordinate, to interplay with each other, to communicate, to understand the parameters and framework for which they're existing to protect the investing community. And so this situation, whether it's a a change in policy or legislation or, or negotiation or some sort of insolvency proceeding that ends up bringing about protection, it'll be interesting to see the way that it plays out. But whether it's a receivership, a U.S. bankruptcy, um, or any of the, these kinds of alternatives to bankruptcy, there are 10 examples that we could have 10 podcasts on You know that can help us learn how the U.S. can coordinate better with international communities and and regulators and courts and and likewise how those courts can can help understand uh, tools that are at our hands uh, in the US bankruptcy court absolutely 
Well, Joel, it's been really great talking to you this afternoon. We appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts and your expertise with us. Thank you so much, Andy. It's been great. Really appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners for checking out this episode of Legal Lens. As always, you can subscribe or download every episode via Spotify or Apple, and you can find thousands of articles with insights, research, and more from our team at DebtWire.com. We'll see you next time.